Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. So when we think about economic development, um, economists first focused a lot on macro topics like inflation, government deficit, trade balances, capital inflows, things like that. Um, later, there was more of a shift to focusing on institutions. You know, how does the country work? Does it have democratic elections that provide good incentives to top leaders? Does it have strong legal systems, protection for property rights, and, and other features that um, were important for facilitating investment uh, and growth, um, whether by you know, foreigners or by people in the country? Um, then more recently, there's been a shift towards uh, kind of micro policy topics with experimentalists conducting randomized controlled trials to figure out you know, whether or how much specific policies um, might help. Uh, things like deworming, malaria bed nets, clean cooking stoves, you know, what, what works. And then if they fail, uh, try to figure out why they might fail. Uh, so all these things are important and obviously continue to be, you know, you get any of them wrong. Uh, things aren't going to go well for your country. But um our guest today is one of a group of scholars uh, refocusing attention on uh, the people who actually implement these policies at the local level and the incentives they face. Um, some might refer to this as public administration or public management. Um, economists, of course, like to co-op things under their own labels. So we might uh, people have been calling it the personnel economics of development. Um, but you know, regardless of whether a country is a democracy or a dictatorship. Uh, and whether you've got a policy that's been evaluated by a randomized controlled trial or not, someone has to carry out the policies. So the question is, you know, who are these people and will they do what they're supposed to? And then also, what are they really supposed to do? They may officially have one set of responsibilities, but the actual um, government officials, the people who hire them and promote them and all that, uh, may actually have different objectives for them. So today we're going to discuss the book Regime Threats and State Solutions, Bureaucratic Loyalty and Embeddedness in Kenya, with Professor May Hassan. May is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Michigan. Um, her work focuses on authoritarian regimes with a particular focus on public administration and the state apparatus. So May, welcome. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to um, have the opportunity to talk about my book. Yeah, I'm looking forward to digging into it. So um, so why don't we start with just what is what is your motivating puzzle? What question do you seek to answer with this book? Yeah, so, you know, it might help um, to, to start by telling a little bit of a story about how I got interested in this topic in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the year was 2013, and this was about a full year after I got back to the U.S. following my dissertation field research. And I remember I was at a small conference, and at the post-dinner social event, I remember talking to this one really eminent um, Kenya scholar who has now passed. And talking to him about my research on decentralization and, you know, how why Kenya had implemented certain types of decentralization that it did. 
And I just remember this eminent Kenyan political scientist being so completely bored by my work. And I remember trying to get his attention back by telling him stories about some of the people who are actually staffing these offices. So the people who are assigned to these different um, decentralized offices and um, how they viewed their jobs and how they viewed their responsibilities with regards to, to, to the state and um, how they actually felt in like being shuffled between offices. And I remember that's when, um, this, this scholar's interest came back into the conversation. And, you know, in talking to him, I realized that in trying to um, understand initially, like, you know, I was initially interested in questions of decentralization, or one can imagine like where the state is and why the state decides to put certain offices in different places. Um, but then really, the, the real question I realized was, you know, who is actually doing what the state asks them to do? Who is actually staffing these offices? Who is in these small provincial towns? Who is in these these medium um, regional cities? Who is actually implementing um, what it is that the state wants them to do? And so that's kind of um, one of the ways in which I came to this conversation that, you know, the structure of the state or like how decentralized it is, is only only matters in so much as the, the, the authority that people in those positions um, actually have to do what it is that they're supposed to do. So then how did you, so, um, so usually like someone's first book sort of is their dissertation, but it sounds like you, you really kind of took this in a new direction. Yeah, so my dissertation actually was, um, a lot of it was on um, district creation and this type of decentralization that, that was really prominent in Kenya and other African countries. Um, but then in talking to, to to Joel and then talking to others, yeah, I started switching. Um, my, my dissertation morphed a lot between the dissertation and the book. And instead of focusing on like where these new districts were created um, or the, the new authority that districts had, it was actually looking at who was staffing these districts, not just the new ones, but all of the country's districts, um, and trying to understand why certain bureaucrats um, or certain types of bureaucrats were more likely to be positioned or to be posted in certain types of places, why certain places um, tended to have better governance, tended to have uh, bureaucrats who cared fundamentally a lot more about those communities, whereas other communities um, always complained about the, the violence and the coercion that they saw from their bureaucrats. And so, you know, it's the same civil service. And so why is it that we got all of these different outcomes based a lot on on the the personnel that was posted to specific districts um, and also um, the management policies um, around these bureaucrats and how they were managed to either develop bonds such that they um, you know cared a bit more about local residents um, cared about their welfare or instead um, were were pretty aloof um, from residents and made it a little bit easier than for bureaucrats to to engage in some more coercive actions Okay, so yeah, so that's that's uh, definitely an important question, right? You you have, you know, supposedly a whole country and its set of policies, but then uh, if you have tremendous variation within the country, some people being just repressive bullies or thugs, and and others actually being effective development practitioners, that's uh, that's quite a difference. So um, yeah, so what were the things that that uh, the key factors that that led to this variation? Yeah, so. It's interesting because um, my my dissertation fieldwork was obviously, you know, in the present, or I guess, you know, 10 years ago at this point. Um, But, and and all the follow-up studies that I did, you know, were were in the 20-teens. But um, most of the book actually looks at Kenya historically. 
Um, and so in doing so, the, the picture that I got from, from archives and from bureaucrats and residents who, who either um, worked or um, lived under these bureaucrats um, in the past since Kenya's independence, um, a lot of them painted a much more coercive picture than, than is being painted now. And so I don't want to give the impression that, that Kenya today, that these bureaucrats are, are these very coercive and these, these violent figures. Um, and this agent, the agencies that, um, that I look at have, has really reformed quite a bit, especially after, um, recent democratization, I'd say like in the past 10 years. Um, but some of the things that I noticed, especially early on is that, um, places and, you know, when you think about it, it's not so surprising, but places that were um, uh, in which opposition supporters were really, really prominent or places um, who were supporters of, of the rivals to each of Kenya's presidents tended to be governed a bit more coercively. And so by that, I mean, they would have more um, officers out on the streets. Um, if people who wanted to apply for, for permits or who wanted to apply for um, permission to do things that could be even considered even remotely political, such as like opening up a women's group or setting a women's group, um, were often routinely denied um, Oftentimes, these um, administrators would send out their informants um, much more strongly, and um, you get this dynamic much more in these opposition areas as opposed to areas that were um, considered uh, more supportive of each president. Um, and so that, that, in a sense, that was the outcome in the variation that, that I noticed, that some places were, were governed much more coercively than other ones, whereas in the in areas of president's core support, you got the sense that administrators um, just cared fundamentally more about local residents. Um, and so, for instance, they would talk about how they would sometimes contribute their own salaries to help locals create local public goods, whether it was a water project or helping construct a local school. Um, these bureaucrats might, um, you know, have every bureaucrat has some leeway in implementing a law or like implementing a regulation. And if a, a regulation called to be a little bit, um, you know, strict, for, for instance, in um, if, for, for instance, people didn't send their kids to school, um, instead of jailing those parents outright, um, in areas of core support, those bureaucrats might work with the parents and try to get them to um, just like in, in talking to them or um, through through different types of sessions to, to, to get them to better comply with, with the government. And so just much more leniency uh, in, in how they carried out their, um, their tasks. Uh, yes, well, wouldn't this be more like kind of, I mean, typical of a lot of countries, right? I mean, even in the U.S., sure. like the people who vote for you, you know, your core supporters, you you give them lots of goodies and you, you know, treat them gently and, and uh, do your best to help them. And then uh, the people who you view as, you know, the unruly mobs who will never, never vote for you or if it's in a, you know, a non-democratic country who are, you know, separatists in your mind or, you know, not accepting the way that you want the country to go, then you know, if they're never going to come along, then, you know, you just, uh, you treat them with the, with the iron fist instead. No, I think it's exactly, that's exactly right. And so the, the outcomes that we, we see, like how these areas are governed, I think is, it, tra it translates to a lot of other contexts, authoritarian, democratic, within Africa, within other parts um, uh, of the developing world, within other parts of the, the world um, in total. 
But the bigger thing is I was really interested in how leaders could get this, these types of governance outcomes in different types of areas when leaders or you know, ministers in the center in, in Nairobi couldn't actually monitor these bureaucrats. They wanted bureaucrats in these opposition areas to be tougher, to be more coercive, to be more violent. They wanted bureaucrats in these um, core areas to be much uh, much more lenient, to be much more cooptative, to be much more helpful, um, to show the good sides of the state so that these so that core areas can, in a sense, continue being core. So how would you enforce that in a context where you can't see what a bureaucrat thousands of miles from the capital city in like this little, little town um, is doing? And so that kind of got me, um, that, that's what got me interested in how these bureaucrats were managed, um, who was hired into the state, where these bureaucrats were posted, um, how long they could be, they could expect to stay in, in, in a, any particular post, and um, the types of bureaucrats who were promoted. And so that ended up becoming the, my main focus, this independent variable of what explains how bureaucrats are managed and how variation in, in bureaucratic management can get bureaucrats themselves um, without monitoring to um, govern these local areas in ways in which the, the regime wanted. And I specifically, specifically focus on authoritarian regimes. And so um, guess how these authoritarian regimes wanted these areas governed. Okay. So, yeah. So um, question is, you, know, you want to, if you can't, if you can't monitor people, so, you know, you, you can't sort of resolve the moral hazard problem. We try to improve right. the adverse selections problems. Exactly. You get at least get someone in the place who's, who's uh, aligned with you. Now, in um, in Kenya, my understanding is, you know, ethnic affiliations are are really crucial in politics. So why don't you just, uh, you know, pack the whole system with people from your party and your ethnic group who, you know, want to please you and just, you know, have, have your guys run things. Um, why not so, do that? So, yeah, one standard solution to this idea of like, if you can't monitor um bureaucrats, why wouldn't you just ensure that, um, you know, solve the adverse selection problem and ensure that everyone who is in the state in the first place, everyone who is, um, who is asked to do anything, um, is in a sense on your side and will do your bidding completely. But the thing is, um, and this is something that, that political science has, is started to, to realize, especially in the past 10 years, is that leaders fundamentally don't just face one type of threat. Um, leaders. So in, in the types of solutions that I'm talking about in, in governing the countryside, those, uh, these, the reasons why leaders would want to co-opt certain areas and coerce others is in a sense that is in, um, it's in a sense a solution to solving the, the the problem of social control. How do you ensure that the population doesn't rise up? How do you ensure that um, you have your your grips over the population? Um, but that's not the only threat that leaders fundamentally face. And oftentimes what's more pressing is in a sense the elite threat, how rival elites, um, so opposition leaders, leaders of, of rival ethnic groups, um, that these rival elites, you know, they're they're quite threatening to to leaders and especially autocrats. Um, you can think about like at the risk of a coup. And so, how do leaders stop 
um, or prevent elites from wanting to to threaten um, leaders in the first place. And what a lot of literature has talked about, especially in the African context, is this, this idea of incorporating rivals, incorporating elite rivals into the state. Um, in Africa, this often takes the the, the point in which Elites are incorporated into the cabinet. So if you have, if you're, if you're a president and you're really worried about, um, you know, another ethnic leader who, you know, has his eyes on the presidency, well, instead of um, letting that person just kind of stew outside of the state and not getting any, not get any state spoils, lots of leaders instead give them a really cushy ministerial position, make them like the minister of labor or make them minister of, of, um, of natural resources so that they at least can get some state spoils for themselves. And that kind of tempers the risk that, or it tempers um, their desire to, to um, want to engage in a coup or to challenge the leader. But fundamentally, when these rival elites are incorporated into the state, they're not just looking for goodies for themselves, but they also need to appease their own supporters. How else can they maintain their elite status if they don't keep giving resources out to their base? And so oftentimes these rival elites will demand from a president that their own followers get a, get um, cushy state positions as well. And so because of this, I argue and I show in the Kenyan case that many um, that the, the state was not packed in Kenya, that no president um, could actually pack any agency with his own co-ethnics who were considered his, his uh, most loyal followers because these positions in a sense were way too valuable to solve the elite threat problem. And instead, if you look at the, um, the, the ethnic breakdown of the, the agency that I track, the provincial administration, the, the ethnic co- composition pretty much is in line with cabinet composition. And so, um, as the mechanism I was saying, you know, has that carries some some weight. What we see is that once ministers get incorporated into the cabinet, they not just they don't just get um, don't they don't just get to dictate how their ministry's budget is spent, but they get to ensure that their own people are hired not just within their own ministry, but within other elements of the state. And so that's why fundamentally. Um, it's really hard for leaders to, to pack the state because if they packed the state and were able to solve, in a sense, the, the problem of social control, they wouldn't be able to solve the problem of elite con- of, of tempering elite threats. Um, and so then now we have the secondary problem of, of leaders don't have this packed state. And so how can they govern the countryside in a manner um, to their liking, given that not everyone in the state is, is going to be completely loyal to them? Okay, so they're stuck with they can't just pick their own people um, because they've kind of take chosen this kind of keep your enemies close strategy of like buying out certain people and and part of that part of buying them out uh, uh, or or bringing them into your your group as kind of reluctant allies in a sense is to make sure that you know not not just they personally can enrich themselves but they also have kind of patronage goodies to to give out to their own uh, their own supporters and so now we've got all these people who've uh, gotten a job, um, not because they're loyal to the the top leader, but because they're loyal to someone else. Um, and so, yeah, what's, so then where, where do you send them? What's the, what's the strategy? Yeah, exactly. And so then the, the question is, so now you have this state or an agency, um, in which not everyone can be expected to loyally carry out their mandate, 
Um, and, and you know that um, you can't, you know, leaders can't monitor behavior such that they can punish or threaten to punish people who, who don't um, carry out the, the tasks that they're assigned to. And so what I focus on is how leaders manage different um, bureaucrats in a sense to type in, in a sense to induce the type of behavior between a bureaucrat and the local area that he or she governs um, so that they, in a sense, want to they, they personally have incentives to carry out um, uh, the type of governance strategy based on their relationship with locals. And so what I mean by that is um, in if you think about any any person who who is really really embedded in the community who has strong social ties to an area, um, either because they've spent so much time there, or because you know maybe they have like an ethnic or or some kind of native intrinsic bond with with locals. Um, might, we can imagine that those people probably care the most about the, that area's development. If I live in a community for you know 15 years, um, and all of a sudden I'm asked to to engage in coercion towards these the, the people that that surround me, that would be really really difficult for me um, because of the bonds that I hold with these people. But also, you know, I'd receive a lot of social sanctioning from from, from locals for engaging in that type of behavior. And so one of the things that I found is that uh, when bureaucrat when when leaders wanted to co-opt certain areas, so especially, for instance, their base, um, areas of core support, bureaucrats who, uh, who governed those areas tended to, to be posted in those areas for a really, really long time. Um, those bureaucrats then could are not only better at their job because, for instance, they might know the best contractor to appoint um, in constructing a school, someone who, who would do the best job with the least amount of money. Um, but then they also like intrinsically care about the area. And so they're not doing their job just because the center told them to, but also because they, they care about that area's development. Um, on the flip side, in areas where you want, where leaders would want more, uh, you know, more of a coercive touch, those are areas in which uh, bureaucrats often tend to be shuffled more frequently. And so while this makes bureaucrats more inefficient, if you are new to an area, you don't know who the the, the local hooligans are, for instance, you don't know who them, what what everyone's um, local position towards the regime is, um, but you don't have the social bonds that are going to prevent you from from um, being willing to send police officers out, um, to send informants out, um, to to crack down on opposition meetings, um, for instance. And so areas of different support were managed differently um, to ensure that bureaucrats would be more willing to, to engage in the type of behavior that the center wanted of them. And so that's one of the, the, the main findings, that areas of core support tended to have bureaucrats who um, tended to be from the same ethnic group, tended to have longer tenures um, in an attempt to get those bureaucrats to actually care about the area and want to do a good job uh, because monitoring wasn't possible. Um, and so at least this way, they have personal incentives to see the, the area's um, development. Whereas in areas that leaders wanted coerced, and these tended to be areas um, of, of opposition supporters, um, but also, uh, but at times areas full of swing voters as well. These areas tended to not have co-ethnics um, govern them and tended to see relatively shorter tenures for those types of bureaucrats. So you tend to send people of your own ethnic group to, to a place where they 
don't have co well, wait, but if you have kind of the same number of people, like if you have a fixed group of, you have, you know, a pool of co-ethnics and a pool of uh, opposition ethnics, and then if you, and it seems like the opposition ethnics are never useful because they're going to be less willing to crack heads in an opposition stronghold because that's their friends or their, their sure. uh, people they'd be affiliated with, but they also wouldn't be as happy, you know, to be, to play nice with your ethnic group and, you know, uh, be, seems like they'd be ba- a bad fit either location. Well, so in a sense, if we think about if there are only, in a sense, two ethnic groups, then definitely, um, you know, the, the, what you talked to, what, what you said would, would be correct. But we can, you know, Kenya has has uh, more than 40 ethnic groups, and there were many opposition rivals. And so oftentimes we would see um, co-ethnics of one opposition's rivals being sent to opposition areas of, of another uh, rival ethnic group, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. No, that that does make sense. Um, and so, making sure that opposition uh, bureaucrats or bureaucrats who are co-ethnics of, of of opponents not were never sent to to, to govern their own co-ethnic areas, but there were other sufficiently um, non-co-ethnic areas that that needed to be governed, or other or places where you know the stakes just fundamentally weren't that high. So, if a bureaucrat, um, you know. Uh, in an area that wasn't like fundamentally crucial, for instance, to winning for for an election, um, then those are areas which where where uh, bureaucrats who you in a, sense, in a sense expect to not comply could be sent. Okay, um, and so but but what about you know the flip side? Um, so in in China, often the idea is that this goes back you know centuries. Is the idea is you you don't want someone who's local to to be there because then he's just going to, he's going to make too many friends and he's going to be able to, you know, collude with the locals and engage in corruption. And then he, he won't carry out your, um, your goals anyway. So, so there's sort of this idea you need to rotate people despite the loss of like not having that local knowledge. You know, if you rotate people among assignments, then, then you'll make sure that they stay loyal to you and, uh, and don't just start uh, making their own kind of you know private kingdom. Um, so does that come into play here at all? Or is that just not, uh, not an issue? So something that I find really interesting in thinking about this bureaucratic management or this personnel politics is how it manifests differently um, in different contexts. And in reading much of the China literature, as you say, there's this really strong aversion to, to a rule, um, to, to having um, people serving in their local area. And you see that a bit in Kenya too. So for instance, in Kenya, no one can ever serve in their home district. Um, And so, but you know, there's multiple districts and many districts, many of the largest ethnic groups in the country, the most politically relevant ethnic groups in the country um, are the majority in more than one district. So, you know, you can still have um, someone for a certain, from a certain ethnic group, govern co-ethnics, even though they're not from that same same specific district. They might be from a, a neighboring district. But I think your broader point um, is, is, you know, thinking about the conditions under which um, this, like, local knowledge is is valued versus the conditions under which regimes or, or, or leaders might be really worried about how uh, about bureaucrats, as you say, creating their own fiefdom if they get if they get too embedded in an area, how that can be dangerous for the regime? And I don't have a, a good answer for that, but I think certain things that 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 different leaders and different regimes probably take into consideration through my reading of the literature and also my knowledge of the Kenyan case um, seems to be, you know, the 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 extent of corruption, um, how 
how likely, like how strong a state is fundamentally to be able to deter some kind of large scale uh, or detect even some kind of large scale rebellion. Um, The the agency in question, if we're thinking about agencies that are more or less coercive, um, you can imagine that the most coercive agencies you might be, uh, leaders might be really worried about allowing some kind of home rule precisely because then you can't give them the guns and the local knowledge because that that equals a a little fiefdom. But maybe, you know, for for bureaucracy, more service-minded bureaucracies like education or water, um, it might make more sense to allow this type of home rule. other considerations are how how much the center cares about corruption. And so um, in reading about, about China recently, for instance, um, there seem to be a lot of anti-corruption campaigns and, and the regime really trying to, to stop um, corruption by bureaucrats. And so if that is a foremost goal of the regime, then you know, home rule is, is probably uh, not going to be tolerated. Whereas in, in the Kenyan case, um, corruption in a sense was was almost expected. Um, and one way to, to allow for, for loyalty um, among any bureaucrat or to try to buy some loyalty among any bureaucrat was to allow this type of petty corruption um, to, going, to go on. Right. Yeah. So just, be, yeah, that's... Even in China, I mean, yeah, it's always well. I think definitely in recent years, it seems like they're more they've been much more serious. You know, there's, they've kind of always complained about corruption, but there's always been an element where um, I think actually, as your your colleague Yuan Yanang has talked about, where kind of the the corruption was kind of part of the package, and that was kind of the the grease that kept everything sure. going. And even though they'd you know pay lip service to you know not wanting it, uh, there there was a lot that could still happen. But they did still have uh, throughout um, you know the the well. In, in China, I mean, not to go too far afield, but uh, just to, you know, they tend to rotate people fairly quickly. So aside from like not being assigned to your home area, um, also like your posting might only be, you know, uh, would be less than five years in most cases. Sure. And so you, the idea is you'd move on kind of before, you know, maybe as you got there, you kind of learn the ropes. You'd also like make some local allies and, you know, set up some networks you could exploit. Um, but then, then you'd be moved on somewhere else. And so you'd never kind of forget who your real master is at the higher level, who, who you owe your job to. And that would, uh, would be some act of some constraint on behavior. Yeah. And so another thing though, is, you know, in, in looking at the personnel records, there were some places where what you describe about this rotation and this tenure length um, being rotated every, every few years, some districts, you know, would have new uh, personnel every two years, like just standard, it's almost like a clock, but then some other districts, um, I, I think that president, I'm remembering correctly, the first Kenyan president, his home district um, I think only saw over his 15 year tenure, I think only saw two or three different um, administrators for that specific district. And, um, you know, people, as you say, you know, might be worried about, you know, the creation of these little fiefdoms and all of that. But the president's home district is, you know, the one that he his ties are the strongest. And there's no way that a rebellion could have emerged from there in the first place. And so in places where, where presidents are just, or leaders are, or what I found, where leaders tend to be the most secure, where they're so sure that like a rebellion or an opposition candidate is not going to emerge, where people are going to comply and not just comply, but like, this is, are going to strongly support the leadership. These are places where, um, where leaders can manage them um, without so much of a tight, um, 
tight leash and instead allow bureaucrats to develop this type of embeddedness that tends to lead to better rule. Because the, the negative consequences of embeddedness, this corruption potential, this creation of these fiefdoms, that's not really an option given the, the population's local leanings. Hmm. Although I guess to an extent, couldn't you argue that um, if, if there are going to be more loyal to you, you don't, I mean, you wouldn't be, you know, pointlessly brutal, like if there's not an opposition yeah. to hunt down and, you know, conduct surveillance on and so forth, then, you know, you don't even have to bother with that. But also in terms of like, actually being extra nice to them, like if they know that, you know, you're their, their guy, and, uh, and that anyone else who replaces you is going to be, um, you know, an, an ethnic a leader of the other ethnic group, and probably won't treat them as well, then in a sense, you don't have to treat them as well as you might, right? Or, or does that not come into play? So yeah, so what you're suggesting is why not take your your take base advantage for of your own people because they know they'll get nothing. It'll only be worse with someone else. Sure, and that's definitely that happens in, in some contexts. Um, but uh, in the in the Kenyan context, that talk, context that's not something that I observed. And I think more broadly, um, the condition you can imagine that that leaders need some base of support in general and oftentimes it's just in a sense cheaper to to co-opt one's base and to to maintain their their strong support as opposed to try to win over a new group um isn't that like a standard thing in marketing that it's much easier to keep a customer than to 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 convince someone someone else and so it seems to be the same way in with regards to 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 leaders you know keeping your base is a lot easier than winning over others um and so i think there are lots of conditions that 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 would lead lead to this outcome Okay, right. Well, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so uh, in terms of how you did the research, so you mentioned, you know, you did um, a lot of uh, a lot of interviews over over quite a while. Um, you also uh, took advantage of uh, government archives from, especially from earlier periods, that opened up. Um, and then you also uh, collected some historical data about um, appointments and promotions and so forth. So, what what kind of data did you collect, and and how did you? Uh, what kinds of uh, things were you able to find out with that? Yeah, so the with the data that I, I collected, um, a lot of it, as you were saying, it was archival. Some of it was, you know, standard, let me go to the Kenyan National Archives or Provincial Archives and look at government correspondence about the bureaucrats that I was interested in or, or by elites, presidents, ministers talking about the uh, these types of bureaucrats. But then a lot of it was um, archives about personnel movement. And so um, the, the agency that I followed, um, the, the most important one in Kenya since independence is called the Provincial Administration. And there are, there are parallels to it um, all, over, all over the world. Um, China has one very similar to it, that's prefecture system, um, the Indian Administrative Service. Um, many, many British colonies have, have you know, a complete replica of the, the Provincial Administration. This is how um, the British colonial state tended to, to govern many of its colonies' um, control many of its colonies and many countries kept some, some version of it after independence. Uh, but within Kenya's provincial administration, um, they, uh, every month, um, the provincial administration would come out with new, uh, would in each jurisdiction would have to say, actually like print out 
who the name of the officer in that specific station was. And then this was compiled at the, the provincial level and there are eight provinces in Kenya. And so um, I was able to collect these, these monthly data. I collected it biannually going back to um, the beginning of independent, uh, beginning of the, the current multi-party era in Kenya. So about 1991, 1992. Mm-hmm. And um, through that, I compiled a, a you know a data set of, of where these bureaucrats were, um, what ethnic group a bureaucrat was, what ethnic group uh, that bureaucrat was, was um, the community that the ethnic, the ethnic community that the bureaucrat was, was um, uh, governing over. And then I was able to get some data from the actual ministry that in which I could connect their salary scale information, for instance, um, their year of birth, um, gender, all of that, and create a big data set of these actual bureaucrats. Uh, but I think actually what was more fun was creating this data set for uh, the independence era, like the earliest years going until um, about 1990. And so there, I wasn't able to find archival documents um, of uh, of these of these administrative records. But instead, um, for the largest administrative units in Kenya, um, the districts that I was initially studying for for my initial dissertation project, if you go mm-hmm. into these offices in Kenya, one of the things the first thing that you'll see is like this huge placard, these huge boards that tend to be right behind um, the, 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 the administrator's desk. And it has the name of every single um, one of the bureaucrats who held that position, sometimes just until independence, but sometimes going back until the colonial era. And so I, you know, visited a lot of these districts personally and trying to figure out, you know, my initial decentralization project. And a lot of them let me take um, pictures of these boards and so that I could actually write, um, you know, transcribe who who was in that office when. Um, mm. And then in other cases, I like texted with different uh, district commissioners and trying to get them uh, to take those pictures for me or have their assistants um, email me or text me uh, what the what those um, boards actually said. Okay, that sounds like uh, yeah, quite uh, quite a lot of work. So not not just uh, not just downloading some nice data set from uh, <laughs> from the internet, huh? Gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so then you know once you'd uh put this together like what kind of uh statistical results were you able to um uh derive from that so in creating this data set i ended up dividing the the analysis you know by president or and by president and by by dem, by um regime type so the country's first president jomo kenyatta who ruled for about 15 years pretty much his whole presidency was pretty autocratic. Um, the, the last 10 years, definitely so. And the first um, five years um, after independence uh, wouldn't be the most democratic. And so um, looking at, at Jomo Kenyatta's um, autocratic, you know, his presidency as a whole, and then the country's second president, who was in power for 25 years, well, his first 15 years, Daniel Arup Moy, uh, his first 15 years were, were, um, very much an autocracy, and his last ten years are probably what people call now competitive, a competitive authoritarian regime. And so there were elections, and they were competitive for sure. They were not exactly the most free or the most fair, right? And then um, the third president, um, I looked at his entire reign as well, Mwai Kabaki, and he his reign was was the most democratic of the three. There were definitely problems, um, uh, and it wouldn't be 
many people wouldn't consider his reign a fully consolidated democracy, but it was much more democratic. Um, and the elections were much freer, much more competitive um, than, than Daniel uh, Eric Moyes. And so mm-hmm. I bifurcated the analysis, analysis by president. And um, in my secondary reading of, of his Kenyan history, um, other Kenyan um, historians, political scientists, but also through my uh, my own document analysis of, of government correspondence in the archives, I tried to map out um, areas that I thought each president wanted to coerce or areas that um, that each president wanted to co-opt. Oftentimes this was um, was as simple as looking at the ethnic composition of those areas. But then sometimes there were um, other things um, such as uh, rebellions in some parts of, of the country or like um, the importance of certain cash crops or um, um, presence of, of certain unions that would, that, that, would suggest that a president would want to uh, coerce or co-opt an area, particularly more than than just by looking at the, the ethnic dynamics. Um, so how would the cash crops, like if it's a cash crop, does that mean you want a, a, a kind and gentle ruler? Or does that mean you want someone who's going to crack the whip and make sure that everyone brings in the crops? You know, actually, cash crop isn't the best example there because um, I didn't... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> had that much variation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the better example is there, um, especially under Kenyatta's presidency, there was um, a rebellion in some parts of, of the northeast of the country. Um, about twenty percent of Kenya's land um, is was in, inhabited or inhabited by um, ethnic Somali groups. They're they're it's obviously Kenyan groups, but they're um, ethnically Somalis. And many of those parts of the country, um, there was a it's called a shift of war or a bandit war. Um, where they were at, at one point trying to secede and, and join with Somali. And so um, governance in that part of the country, um, you know, if you just look at the ethnic, if you didn't know about that war, then you might wonder why, it, or you might think that it would just be governed like any other non-core area. But having known that, um, you would think that that area would be governed a bit more coercively. And so then... Okay. Um, I was able to to look at the data and get a sense of how long bureaucrats were posted um, in in different types of areas, and get a sense of the, the in a sense the ethnic match to were areas governed by co ethnics or were they governed by by non locals? Okay, and so um, so then so yeah so what did what did you end up finding? So for class, most of the. the uh, Kenya's history, um, the the patterns were were pretty consistent, and each president's core area, as I was saying before, tended to be governed by co-ethnics, um, and if not co-ethnics, then they tended to be governed. They tended to see all these core areas, regardless of the president, tended to see bureaucrats posted there for much longer, significantly longer tenures, oftentimes by like one to two years, which is at some point in some parts of Kenya's history, like 50% longer tenures than other bureaucrats, than other areas. And then in Kenya's more autocratic periods, the um, opposition areas, areas that were inhabited by Co-ethnics of rival elites tended to be governed much short, more. Um, tended to have bureaucrats who were posted for much shorter tenures, um, 
and were consistently less likely to have co-ethnics govern them. And then in Kenya's democratic or more electoral era, so after um, the, the re- re-emergence of multi-party elections in, in 1992, we mm-hmm. see that um, swing areas, which is in the, which is where you know most votes votes were were fought, um, tended to have more co-ethnics of the president posted there and co-ethnics of the opposition were kept clear very far away from these these really really important zones and so in these um during the electoral era really ensuring that like what needed to be done in 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 these swing areas that were going to tip the election either way were governed by each president's most loyal uh bureaucrats Right, so they're crucial. So you make sure not to not to get your your plans messed up by someone who's who's not not really loyal to you. Yeah, exactly. And so in thinking about the, um, the management strategy of the, the country as a whole, you know, you get the sense that leaders were able to solve both the the elite threat problem and the popular threat problem at the same time. And so they solved the elite threat problem by allowing non-co-ethnics into the state. So by not packing the state and instead letting these these rival uh, elites get their own co-ethnics into the state, you know, it tempers the elite's willingness to to want to engage in some kind of extra legal transfer of power or try to challenge the the, the president um, for, for for authority. But then by managing bureaucrats in this strategic way, leaders were also able to solve the popular threat problem and ensure that areas that needed to be co-opted to ensure their continued support could be co-opted, whereas areas that needed to be coerced, whether it was to stop some kind of uprising, to stop some kind of rebellion, whether it was um, to, to stop the opposition from, from taking root there or to, to, to win an election, those areas could still be governed in the way that the leader needed them to be governed in, um, even though the state wasn't packed, precisely because of the initial elite threat problem. Okay. You mentioned um, uh, also promotions. Um, did that play in in a different way, or is that just a matter of like who, who got rotated to where? So I was able to um, look at promotions under Kenya's third president, Mwai um, Kavaki, and um, I believe you had um, Kathleen Klaus on the New Books Network um, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and a lot of her work um, looks at Kenya, uh, Kenya's 2007, 2000, uh, 2007 contested election, where there was a whole host of post-election violence um, spilling into 2008, mm-hmm. and this viol- this violence was uh, allegedly propagated by many members of this, the, the the agency that that I examine. And so one of the things that I do is I look at bureaucrats who were posted to places where there tended to be violent, where there was violence during them in this post-election period. And I looked at their promotion patterns afterwards and, um, you know, in a sense, unsurprisingly, but, 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 um, just con- concerningly, um, bureaucrats who were in places where there was, um, violence that tended to support Mwai Kabaki and his re-election campaign tended to, um, were more likely to be promoted um, after um, after the violence abated. And so, whereas the way that I described it in the book is, you know, oftentimes monitoring is fundamentally really difficult for, um, for, for leaders. Like, how can you tell that a, a bureaucrat um, met with locals to ensure that that that's that school-aged children 
um, you know, went to school properly or that education um, uh, standards got better. That's not something that you can quickly observe within like the, the three to five year period of any one bureaucrat. Um, mm-hmm. But something like post-election violence, and that's a lot more visible to the center. It's a lot easier for the center to know whether or not a bureaucrat, you know, um, oversaw a jurisdiction in which there were um, there was arson attacks against the opposition, where opposition supporters were were chased out or or God forbid killed, um, or on the flip side where there happened to be violence um, and d- displaced peoples who were supporters of 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 the president and of the. The, the ruling party. And so the center having being able to actually observe bureaucratic behavior in, in, in this very um, distorted way um, was able in a sense to reward those that were loyal um, where like through, through, through actual acts of loyalty, not just based off of their ethnic identity um, mm-hmm. and bureaucrats who were um, who, who weren't willing to engage in that type of violence um, on behalf of the regime or who did so on behalf of the opposition were, were systematically um, stymied in their promotion patterns or let go. And so you would right. think that bureaucrats, any bureaucrat who, who would support post-election violence, which, you know, obviously should get fired. Um, but, and you definitely saw that with bureaucrats who, who supported um, opposition violence or who were in jurisdictions where there was a lot of um, opposition violence, but that's not the case in bureaucrats who were posted to um, areas that saw violence on behalf of the ruling party. Those bureaucrats um, tended to actually get rewarded, which is, you know, you know, if we were thinking about this as just a good governance kind of hypothesis, that's not what we would expect. Right. So they yeah, hear, hear very much their, their definition of, uh, uh, I guess, um, what good governance or what desired governance was it would be quite different from uh, what we might hope for, but but they got what they wanted and they promoted the people who who carried that out. Yeah, um, yeah, and it's it's a very disconcerting result, but um, that's that's what it suggests. Yeah, well, that's that's why we distinguish between like fully fully consolidated democracies, where of course everything is always peaceful and no one ever contests elections, and uh, the other ones where things are are crazy. Um, Although maybe there's none left in the fully consolidated category anymore. That's a say, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> yes, I was, that was tongue in cheek. Um, anyway, yeah, definitely uh, not a fan of people who promote post-election violence uh, and uh, rioting and whatnot. Um, sure. But uh, but clearly there are political incentives to do that, um, and to, uh, and some people will uh, will reward their subordinates or their elected officials who make that happen on their behalf. Um, Anyway, but don't get off track there. Um, so, uh, well, that that's really great um, that we're getting close to um, the amount of time we have for now. So I just wanted to give you a chance to, before we sign off, to tell us um, what you're working on now. So I have a few ongoing projects um, on Kenya and the Kenyan state. And so a lot of my research, I, if I could describe my you know, zooming out what I think my book is about, I think it's about the politicization of state capacity and how leaders, we often tend to think about, uh, I don't know if you remember, Peter, from your grad seminars, uh, your field seminar um, back in grad school, but like, I was taught that state capacity is this thing that's very slow moving and states like state capacity can't change very much in, in the short or medium term. But um, I really wanted to, to push back against that, that there are ways in which, um, 
And, and in general, people think of state capacity in, in Africa as being fundamentally weak, that leaders can't get their state to do anything that they want them to do. But in doing the research for my book, I saw that you know it's quite the opposite, that Kenyan leaders, in some cases, had a very capable state in some periods of time, in specific areas. And so trying to understand how leaders can, can jigger state capacity in that sense um, and, and politicize it so that it that, you know, it's endogenous to, to regime outcomes. And so a lot of my ongoing research on Kenya is still trying to, to grapple with that idea. Um, I, I have um, a paper with Kathleen Klaus, who I mentioned earlier, um, where we look at the conditions under which different Kenyan leaders were willing to grant property rights um, to land reform beneficiaries in, in Kenya. Um, and then I have other projects about, um, about, uh, about patronage hiring um, in the, the local level as well. And so um, how the conditions under which the state would expand in size um, or constrict based on um, how, you know, how much support in the sense the state needed to, to buy um, at a certain period of time. Um, but most of my actual new work is focused on Sudan. So um, I am Sudanese. Um, I my family and I immigrated here um, back in the 90s. And so after the slate of Kenya work, I decided that it was time to, um, to, to, you know, there's not much scholarship done on Sudan, and I thought that um, I was poised to do so. And just as I was switching over to Sudan, um, Sudan had this popular uprising that got rid of a dictator and um, his horrible Islamist regime that was in power for 30 years. And so a lot of my research now is less so focused um, on many of the questions that I focus on in Kenya, um, and is instead is looking at uprisings and revolutions and um, how, how you get uh, resistance and mobilization against um, autocratic regimes um, and the conditions under which it can su- succeed. And some of the challenges that um, democratization or this tr- um, transition period um, is facing in, in, in the country. Hmm. Well, I hope you'll also uh, not, not give up on uh, studying kind of the autocracy as it is in the sense that, you know, I mean, uh, if there's people who are now willing to talk about how things worked under the old regime, you know, or, or documents that become available that wouldn't have been, uh, you know, something you could look at five years ago, then, then that also could create, you know, uh, more retrospective as you did with Kenya, but, you know, chances to, to find out about stuff that was previously under wraps. Um, certainly a lot of the people working on the post-communist regimes in Eastern Europe have uh, over the decades come up with some really insightful um, work there, which, which has implications for, uh, for a lot of current regimes as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, but that sounds really cool. And obviously, you know, great to uh, not a lot of uh, people with with the kind of expertise um, in Sudan who could, uh, you know, go and, and blend in and, and do great scholarship. So so that's wonderful. You're taking advantage of that. Yes, though, I am very cognizant of my quote unquote embeddedness within Sudanese society and thinking about uh, how my positionality, given my, you know, research on about how how um, anyone who has social ties to an area or you know, to a group uh, might act differently. Um, and so it's something that it's been really interesting to, to navigate in working on the Sudan research, uh, but fun nonetheless. Makes you care about it more, for sure. Right. No no doubt about that. Um, well, yeah, that's that's all really exciting. Um, so, yeah, that's about all the time we have. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed uh, having a chance to talk to you and, and learn about your research. Thanks so much for um, inviting me, Peter. I really enjoyed our conversation and getting a chance to, to you know, discuss, discuss my book a bit in depth.